our text this morning comes in this series that we're doing of the I am statements of Jesus. The Apostle John records in his gospel seven times where Jesus, in response to a situation, says, I am. And it's no small thing for him to say, I am, is it? It's how God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, who then shall I say has sent me to these people, the Israelites? And the bush where God's presence is says, tell them I am sent you. Seven times then Jesus takes on the divine name, I, I am. And says something about himself. We've already seen Jesus say that I am the bread of life. We've seen Jesus say I am the light of the world. We've seen Jesus last week in this sermonette in John chapter 10 say I am the door. And now he's going to go on and say something more about that. Not only does Jesus say I am the door. Jesus now says I am the good shepherd. So I'll invite you to turn with me. To John chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 11 and read through the end of verse 21. Stand if you would, please. Text is also printed for you on the insert in your program. I'll back up one verse to verse 10. The thief, the one that comes in over the wall... That thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word and it's absolutely true and it's given to us this day in love. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to hear the soft voice of the good shepherd who knows us and loves us and calls for us and cares for us. 
Lead us here, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Be seated if you would. So let's do a little bit of a review here. Last week, we read the first uh, part of this little sermonette that Jesus gave in John chapter 10. And what had just happened in John chapter 9 was something profound. In John chapter 9, we find a man who is born blind from birth. The disciples come upon this man and say, okay, somebody sinned. Who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus said, none of those things. This has happened so that the work of God may be seen, may be made manifest. Jesus went and goes and makes mud from the clay of the ground and rubs it in the man's eyes and tells him to go wash by the pool, which at that point his eyes are restored and he can see. He can see for the first time in his life. This did not please the religious leaders, not one single bit, because if you'll remember, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And they, after all, were very good Bible-knowing religious leaders. And they said, no, no, no. A man from God cannot possibly heal on the Sabbath. And one of the things that we said is that it is possible to be a Bible people but not be a Jesus people. Because unless we understand every single thing in the Bible, in and through and because of the person in the work of Jesus Christ, we're missing the Bible. This week, we want to look at what Jesus said beyond this teaching where he said, I am the door. Remember, he said, I'm the one. I'm the one that says who's in and who's out. I'm the one who is controlling, who has access to God. The thief, the, the ones, the, the, the wall climbers are the ones that come up over the wall and get access to the sheep pen that have no business being there. So this week we're going to look uh, not so much at what a faithful follower of Jesus looks and acts like, but the characteristics of Jesus himself. Um, so you heard David read earlier from Ezekiel 34. Um, there were stern words spoken to the failed shepherds of Israel. And so we have those words ringing in our ears now as Jesus now turns and looks directly at the religious leaders and says, guess what? I am the good shepherd. So Think about that as we go through our text. We're going to think this morning about three things. We're going to think about the claim of the shepherd to his flock, the cost of the shepherd for his flock, and the completion of the shepherd's flock. Okay? So the claim of the shepherd for his flock, the cost of the shepherd for his flock, and the completion of the shepherd's flock. Here's the first thing I want you to see is the claim of the shepherd to his flock. In verse 12 Jesus says, after he says, I am the good shepherd, he says this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Philip Keller um, is, uh, is a writer who is, was himself a shepherd formerly. He tells this story about his verse his very first flock that he'd ever had. He says this. He says, they belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned 
by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate, grinding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were in very truth, a part of me, and I a part of them. This made those 30 U's exceedingly precious to me. But Keller goes on and notes that this isn't the way that all hands feel about their flocks. He remembers a ranch operated by a tenant sheepman, and he writes this. He said, this man ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin and weak and riddled with disease and parasites. The hired shepherd had no personal interest in the sheep and did not expend himself in preparing green pastures. What did Jesus say? He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. An employee is likely going to be reliable as long as things are safe and going well. But as soon as things start going bad, as soon as danger comes, the hired hand is going to run and flee and care for himself first. The same was true in Israel. The religious leaders were only in it for their own gain, for their own status, for their own security. And we see this in churches today too, don't we? We see people in churches who are only in it for their own gain, for their own status, for their own security. They're only there to advance their platform or their public persona. Here's the thing. We are forever and always motivated to live out of the overflow of our heart, the overflow of our character. Our character, who we are when no one is looking, is what motivates the choices that we make. If you're, if you're a selfish person deep down, then you're going to act selfishly when the pressure's on. If you're a selfless person, if you've been changed by Jesus into, a, into being a, a selfless person, you are going to act selflessly when the pressure is on uh, as Jesus is revealed here and will continue to demonstrate throughout his earthly ministry, the way he is the good shepherd um, is, is because of how he sacrifices for the good of the flock. Now, Jesus says in verse 14 again, as a, as a repetition of what he said in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. He's making a character, he's making a, a description about himself, about an intrinsic quality of himself. Now, there are two words for good that show up in the New Testament in the Greek. One of them is a word that simply speaks of moral goodness. The other Greek word speaks of beauty or excellence. The good shepherd is attractive. This is the good that we're using here. He's genuine, he's lovely. There can be morally upright people that are not lovely people, right? 
There was nothing uh, uh, morally not upright so far as the Pharisees were concerned about themselves. They were quite morally upright. They kept all the laws. They were not good people. They were not lovely people. They were not excellent people. So there can be people who embody the technical definition of goodness while being still quite repulsive. But Jesus, our Jesus is lovely. Other shepherds who would come after him can, can only dimly be compared to him, but it is, it is this Jesus that we are striving to be like, and by the power of the, the Spirit that is at work in us, slowly and surely are, 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 are becoming dim reflections of this picture of loveliness and goodness. Because this shepherd, our shepherd, is not like the others. He isn't interested just in what we do or accomplish for him. He is not the taskmaster that would work us until we are but a shell of what we once were. He does not rob us of our worth in order to bolster his own. He does not put us towards peril so that he can prosper. He is good. He is wonderful. He is, he is trustworthy. And the promises of Scripture that point to the, to the great and glorious shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, are ours. How are they ours? How are these promises ours? Because Jesus, Jesus said, the, the flock, these are mine. They are mine. I lay down my life for my sheep. Because Jesus lays down his life for his sheep and because Jesus has not stopped gathering into one flock all of his sheep. This is the claim that Jesus has. I love this passage because it is this passage that I most often go to when I'm trying to really understand the cross of Christ when I'm really trying to understand what it means, what, what atonement means, what it means that Jesus laid down his life and gave his life for the likes of you and me. I want to look for a few moments at the cost. The claim is that Jesus is the only good shepherd to ever come and to bring a flock. He loves his flock. He's going to care for it. What did it cost him? It cost him his, his life. Look at verses 11 and 15 and 17 through 18. Jesus says these words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, see, I, I'm not an animal person, um, really, much. I'm not the most compassionate person even when it comes to the, to the animals that I have. We have frequent discussions about what our threshold is in terms of how much money we will spend for our animals. Jen says, whatever has to be done. And I say, a needle doesn't cost that much. You knew where that was going before I even said it. Don't awe me. She still puts up with me. It's okay. And notice the animals are fine. (laughs) 
regardless of how you feel about your household pets, we don't really have a category for laying down our life. But this is what Jesus says he does, because sheep and shepherds is but a metaphor to get us into who Jesus really is and what Jesus really does. Jesus says, I lay down my life. So last week I said it was possible to be a Bible-centered people and still miss the point of the Bible, which is Jesus. Here's the other thing, too. It is also possible to be a Jesus person but miss the gospel. How do you do that? Well, like this. If we, take, um, if we take Jesus and just interpret him through his moral teachings, Jesus was a good teacher. He was wise. We should listen to the wise things that he said and try and apply them to our lives. But that's not, that's not a complete picture of Jesus, is it? No, we also have to go and not only see Jesus through his teachings, but also see him through the cross. Now, if you see the cross as simply a a most noble example of what sacrificial love looks like, well, that's okay. Not less than that. But you still missed what Jesus is and who um, who Jesus is and who he came, what he came to do. Now, you see, for us to truly understand what the cross means, um, it's not anything less than an example of love, but it's more fully the, the beginning of God's rescue of his people. The cross of Christ is, in fact, the, the, the climax of God's rescue of a people who had rebelled and turned away and run from God. The prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned, every one to his own way. Do you know what sheep do when they're not in a sheep pen? They run. And they keep running. They're not very smart. I know that, that gets brought up a lot. I'm not trying to make it, well, maybe a little bit. Okay, we're also not that smart. I'm sorry. We're not. Um, To see the cross as an example of love is not the end of its meaning, but it's only it's the beginning of its meaning. The cross is God's rescue of God's people. It's the sole means through which atonement for sin was accomplished. There is no Christianity without the cross. The cross is central because it is through that that the work of Christ was accomplished. It was the the means through which God saved his people. Indeed, when the Apostle Paul was speaking about his ministry, he said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was not Paul talking about Jesus, the great teacher, or Jesus, the, um, the paragon of example. That was, Je- that was Paul talking about Jesus, our Savior, our substitute, our sacrifice. If you think about Jesus in any other way and his cross other than through those means, you've missed the message of the Bible. To be Christ-centered is not only to understand that the cross is vital versus peripheral to our faith, but it's also to understand that Jesus went there willingly. 
Look at what he says in verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus was not, uh, Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. He was not coerced. He was not, he was not um, made to do something against his will. Do you think that if Jesus didn't want to go there, that he would have gone there? He went there only because he volunteered to do so. And of course, we see the, the events of the chief priests, the Pharisees and Judas, Pilate, all playing a role in the crucifixion of Christ. But he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine and fully human. No one takes his life from him unless he permits it. Another thing. When you think about the cross of Christ, when you think about exactly what has happened on the cross, there's a deeply personal nature to it. Jesus didn't die so that there would be a possibility one day of sheep being ransomed and saved if only they but heard the call and decided they needed what Jesus offered. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord for his sheep. Hear me. There is not a single one for whom Jesus gave his life that will not ultimately be rescued by Jesus. If that's not true, then I have no idea what Jesus did on the cross except something by a wing and a prayer and a coin flip of I hope this works. I lay down my life for who? For my sheep. Who hears my voice? My sheep. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord for his sheep, the ones he knows by name, the ones that hear his voice. The fullness of Jesus' life was poured out for the fullness of Jesus' very flock. Not a single sheep that was ransomed by the shepherd would be lost. Not a single drop of blood shed would be wasted. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Friend, do you know? Do you know that when Jesus gave his life, it was not for some abstraction. It was for you. Not for the possibility that you would be saved. But in fact, so that you would be saved. And if the surety of Jesus' blood is that not a single one for whom Jesus gave his life would be lost, 
then we who are called by his name and bought with his blood have confidence. A hundred percent confidence. We can stake our very lives on it because Jesus has said it's true. Because it cost him everything. It cost him everything. He did everything so that we would get everything. And I'm not standing up here and preaching some universal atonement that means that everybody is going to go to heaven. We know that there are those who have rejected Jesus. We know that Judas rejected Jesus. I'm saying that what Jesus did on the cross was assure that every single little lamb that belonged in that sheep pen would get there and he would be the good shepherd. But there's more. Because this, this was something that Jesus did for his sheep on behalf of them. It was never something that we could do. So how do we understand this? I, I kind of ran past it quick in verse 17, but let's go back and look at it. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Say what now? I thought God always loved Jesus. We could um, translate that this way. Um, I don't think it means that, that God only loved Jesus if he went to the cross. I think it, it looks like this. The father so loves his son and so loves his world that out of this deep double love for his son and the world, the father is thrilled that his son is willing to lay down his life for his world. It is a delight for God to see his son rescue the world. We should then also talk about the world because that's the third thing I want to talk about, the completion of the shepherd's flock. Go look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. All right, so we're thinking about the completion of Jesus's flock here. This is first a global completion. So when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, what he's saying is, it's not just Israel that I'm gathering into the sheep pen, but I have other sheep all over the world. I have them in Uganda. I have them in the United States. I have them in South America. I have them in the Korean Peninsula. I have them all over the world. I've given my life for the sheep, and the completion of the flock is a global completion of the flock. That's the first thing. The second thing. Again, it is a certain completion. Look at what he says. Have other sheep that are not this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. Right? So Jesus doesn't speak of this flock in terms of hopefulness or wishful thinking or sheer optimism. He speaks of a flock made up of sheep for whom each 
one of them, their names are known, their stories are known, their hopes, their dreams are known intimately to him. It is not anything less than his flock, and it is certain that it will find its fullness and its fulfillment in him. Listen, I don't understand um, how it is that so often Christians lose their zeal for evangelism and global missions. Do you understand what the promises of Scripture are? That there are the ransomed of God across every tribe and tongue and people and nation for whom they are known by the shepherd and he is going to whisper their name and call them out from death into life. And it is our joy, it is our privilege, it is our our delight to go and be ambassadors of this good news to a world. To have confidence that the, that the shepherd will have the completion of his flock is not to sit back and go, well, you know, let go, let God. It's rather to step forward in boldness, in faith, understanding that even our bumbling, fumbling, messed up efforts to try and be ambassadors for Jesus will be met most surely and most affirmatively by the word of his spirit moving in and through and sometimes in spite of us to bring into the sheep pen his sheep. I must go get them, he says. They will hear my voice. So that's the second thing. There's a certain completion of the flock. Third thing, it's a personal completion. They will hear whose voice? His voice. They hear Jesus' voice. They listen to him. He speaks and they respond. Faith comes through nothing less than hearing the very good word of the shepherd and responding. It's how you and I both came to know and continue to be reminded of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Fourth thing. So not only is it a global completion, a certain completion, a personal completion of the flock, it's an exclusive completion of the flock. It's an exclusive completion of the flock. Um, Jesus says there will be one flock and one shepherd. Um, There is then an exclusivity. Um, There's not multiple shepherds. Um, Buddha is not a shepherd of the flock. Gandhi is not a shepherd of the flock. Confucius is not a shepherd of the flock. Even Moses or Abraham is not a shepherd of the flock. There was only one flock, and it is Jesus that it is the shepherd of it. It is his There are not multiple avenues and multiple roads leading to God. It is only through Jesus. It's his. Jesus is the one who loves the world. He's the one who has people in it for whom he has shed his blood and died. They are his sheep. He secures their place in his sheepfold through his cross. He summons them to his sheep pen through his voice through which he calls them. He sustains them in the sheep pen by being the door through which they come in and out and have access to lush and green pasture. He guards and keeps them safe by casting out wall climbers and hired hands who want nothing to do with the sheep at all the pharisees knew their scriptures ezekiel 34 would not have been lost on them this stirred up some division 
as you might expect. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And they responded, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Look at what's in, in Psalm 146, verse 8. It says this. It says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Look, a blind man who had his eyes opened and could see for the first time was seeing Jesus clearly and declaring him to be the one who had opened his eyes and saved him. The ones who were supposed to be able to see, the ones who were supposed to be able to have sight, were fumbling around like blind people in the darkness. See, what's John doing at the end of this sermonette? Going back and referencing again the young man born blind in John chapter 9. This is John's way of reminding us that we have to make a decision. Do you believe, do you honestly believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is the door? Do you believe that he's the good shepherd? Or do you not? The man healed in chapter 9 is no accident. Is Jesus a hired hand here to get something from you? Or is Jesus the good shepherd who has done everything for you? Is Jesus a demon? Is he one to be feared? Or is he the Lord himself, one who is faithful and good and true? So let me ask you, as we close this morning, who... Who have you given the right to tend your soul? Who is the one that you're actually looking to, to feed you, to nourish you, to keep you safe? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Jesus said, I, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. For my sheep. There's nothing else. There's nothing else in your life that will lay down its life for you and raise from the dead to rescue you. Only Jesus will do that.